In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So whenever I hear this uh, passage about uh, Moses and the people at Sinai, inevitably uh, what comes to mind uh, for me is Charlton Heston <laughs> coming down from the mountain. I cannot help it. The image is embedded in my mind. Um, many of you, I suspect, at some point uh, saw Cecil B. DeMille's masterpiece, uh, The Ten Commandments. Uh, it was one of those movies that as soon as the lights go down, you completely lose track of time, which is a good thing because it was really long. Um, but it wasn't just a movie. I mean, in many ways, it was an experience, uh, which was spectacular uh, at some points and just downright silly at other points. Um, but what struck me most, I remember, was the conviction uh, about it all. Um, you probably know what I mean. When that movie was made, it was made not just with entertainment in mind. There was a higher purpose at work, something that the filmmaker and its 1950s audience all had in common. It was the notion that, that this story was seminal to their life, both as a people and as a nation, and that ongoing obedience to God's law was really crucial to the continuation of that life. These days, I'm not so sure about that. Charlton Heston came down from Mount Sinai, you remember, carrying a stone in either for a, a stone tablet in either forearm, and even I laughed. I mean, his hair is totally fluffed up. Uh, this encounter with the Almighty was electrifying, or his hair dryer didn't work that morning. Um, and maybe that's the best that Cecil B. DeMille could do in those days. After all, he had to in some way convey that something had changed up on the mountain. When Moses went up on the mountain, you see, he was Moses, the liberator of the people. He had helped to set the people free from slavery in Egypt. You remember God's promises to Abraham. There were three sort of shining jewels in it. There were to be descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. There was to be a special relationship between God and this people. And then there was to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, the people themselves were the proof that the first part of that promise had come true. They were literally living by the grace of the second part of that promise, and they were on their way to the third part of the promise. And yet there was something that was missing, and that is what Moses went up on the mountain to get. When he went up on the mountain, Moses the liberator, but when he came down, scorched from his experience, uh, he was Moses the lawgiver, bearing in his arms these two stone tablets that God had given to the people. They were short, they were to the point, there were 10 of them, one for each finger, so that even a child could remember them. Four, thou shalt, six, thou shalt nots, covering 
virtually every aspect of their relationships between God and between each other. No fine print. If the people had been confused about the shape of their relationship with God, uh, now those questions were answered. But think of it, what a change this was. I mean, really, for centuries, their relationship with God had been all about grace. No laws, no rules. God made promises to Noah. God made promises to Abraham without asking anything in return. In both cases, it was God who was bound by the covenant. Humankind was set free. I will establish my covenant with you, God promised Noah. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. God promises Abraham, I will give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and a land flowing with milk and honey. But now, all of a sudden, the divine I shalls have had the tables turned and the thou shalts have begun. The covenant with Moses apparently has obligations. Chosen people are expected to live in chosen ways. And for maybe the first time in history, formal religious law comes into the picture. What a blow. I don't like rules. My wife will tell you this. The adolescent in me just rises to the surface immediately. So why? Why now? So the book of Exodus suggests now because the promise has already begun to come true. So remember, just months earlier, God had stymied the Egyptians. He had borne them, as we just sang, on eagles' wings out of slavery. You have seen what I did, God, God says to Moses. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my people among all peoples. That's how the thou shalts begin. Because I have done what I said I would do, now it's your turn. It's your turn to show what you can do. It's kind of a modern translation of what God says to Moses. Because I have now, thou shalt. Only you see there is really no coercion here. There's no twisting of the arms. If you obey my voice, God says, I'm about to spell it out for you so that there are no questions about how a holy people acts. But I cannot, I will not choose it for you. Only you can do that. If you do, though, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. Now, some of you may have grown up on the King James Version, and so you are used to a slightly different translation here. Ye shall be my peculiar treasure unto me among all the peoples. It says in good Elizabethan English, and in my money, for my money, that's a sweeter translation. The Hebrew word is segula, a king's treasure. You will be the sign of the king's favor 
if you obey my voice and keep my covenant. There is really no doubt about it. This is conditional language. Those who know their Bibles have heard this before. In the New Testament, Jesus says to the disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. On the one hand, that makes perfect sense to us. In order to be the Lord's friends, in order to be a peculiar treasure, there are certain things that we must do, right? I mean, God will grant us special relationship status as a reward for our obedience. That's just the way the world works, right? On the other hand, what a crushing disappointment that God's love should be offered on the same terms as so much of human love with conditions on our behavior. For most of us, that started before we could talk. Think of it. Mom was all smiles until that third plastic glass of milk headed off the high chair and landed on the kitchen floor. Dad thought a game of darts was fun until one of those missed the target and landed quivering in his foot. It was the same in the classroom, right? Correct answers made the teacher's eyes glow. But snicker just once behind her back, and suddenly a chill fell over the entire room. That's just how it is. It was the same on the playground. The score is four to three when you come up to bat. Two outs and the base is loaded. Even the people on your team groan as you come to the plate. Softball has never been your thing. But it's not like you have a choice. It's your turn. Everybody has a turn. So you swing, and you swing, each time hoping for a miracle, for the shock of that wood hitting leather traveling up your skinny little arms. But no, strike three, and nobody talked to you in the lunchroom that day. Over and over again, it's the same lesson in this life. Perform well, and people will love you. Foul up, you're on your own. It's not always that blatant. It's not even always that conscious, but still, it's how we most often act. If you do what I want you to do, I will spend more time with you. If you behave the way I want you to behave, I will tell you what a good person you are. Conditional love. I'll love you if. And of course, the fear that gets cranked up inside of us with that kind of language is not just the fear of being a bad person. It's much more basic than that. It's the fear of abandonment. It's the fear of being left alone, one of our two elemental fears. That's why it is so hard to hear God say, if 
Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my possession among all the people. And what if we don't? What if we fail? Will God dump that treasure out on the street for passers-by? Like the guy that comes to collect your garbage before the garbage truck actually gets there? Is there any love loose in the world for people like you and me? People who spill our milk and who swing at the third strike and yet who still have this fierce hunger, this crying need for someone who will look at the mess that we have made and say, it's all right, I still love you. You see, at Sinai, God gave the chosen people two very valuable gifts. One of those was the gift of the law. The other was a renewal of God's promise. And ever since then, we have been trying to figure out how do these two go together? Do we have to obey all the laws in order to earn the promise? Because that's how it sounds, right? But that doesn't quite work. After all, Moses was a murderer, yes? Who is he to carry a tablet in his hands that says, thou shalt not kill? And what about the rest of his rowdy crowd? By the time Moses finally comes down from the mountain, the law balanced on his huge forearms, everybody down below has already given up on him. When he walks into the camp, here is his own brother, Aaron, putting the final touches, the ears, on a golden calf while all the other people dance around it. And so Moses lets the tablets crash on the ground. He lets them break because the people have already broken them. They come over to see what happens, and there's a, you shall have no other God over here, and halfway down the hill, God's before me. You see, if the relationship had been based on obeying the law, that would have been it. The Ten Commandments would have been dead on arrival. But that wasn't it. You heard the story that Alan just read, and remember that theology is always in the story. So Moses pleads to God on behalf of the people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your servants, Moses begs. Remember what you said to them. There will be descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. There will be a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses reminds God of the promise. And then comes one of the most incredible lines in all of the Bible. Did you hear it? It says, the Lord repented of the evil which he had thought to do to the people. In other words, God changed his mind and he forgives them. So that makes it sound like the promise voids the law. Only that doesn't really work either, because promise without law is like a tent with no tent poles. 
It just doesn't hold up. It's shapeless. It looks this way to one person and another way to the next, and there's no telling which way is really right. The promise, meanwhile, has a particular shape to it. And being heirs of it does not mean just anything goes, as a lot of people say today. God knows there are ways of life that work and there are ways that don't. And the whole point of the promise is to give people a way of life that works. Which brings us back to God's covenant with Moses. Here, God says, setting ten commandments in stone. Here are ten rules for a way of life that works. Number one, no other gods before me. In the first place, I get jealous of all those other gods. And second, they can't really do anything for you. Remember, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. Don't give anyone or anything my unique place in your heart. Number two, no more golden calves. You look silly, frankly, bowing down to little statues that you yourselves have made. Besides, you don't need them. You have me. Number three, don't throw my name around as though I wasn't really there or can't hear you. A name is a very personal thing. And the very fact that you know my name is a sign of our closeness. Don't abuse the privilege. Number four, keep the Sabbath. Not for my sake, but for yours. One day a week, stop working. Remember, it's not all about you. It's not all up to you. You are more than your resume. Number five, honor your father and mother. Whatever kind of number they did on you, they are still your roots. Lose them, and you lose your place in the story. Furthermore, your kids are watching how you treat them. Number six, don't murder. However dubious it may sound to you, all life is precious to me, including yours. Until you can make it, don't take it. Number seven, don't mess around with your marriage vows, your own or anybody else's. For all of its highs and lows and in-betweens, sticking with one person is probably the best chance you've got of growing up. <laughs> Number eight, don't take what doesn't belong to you. Life may not be fair. That doesn't mean you can't be. Number nine, don't give your word on things that you know aren't true. Your word is as much a part of who you are as your arm or your leg. Twist it and you will forever limp. Why would you do that to yourself? And 10, don't fondle other people's things in your mind as if they were your own. You will not only wind up resenting them for having things, you will soon resent yourself for not having them. So learn to want what you have 
and pretty soon you will have what you want. So here they are, God's top 10 list. The sign of a wor life worth living. All of them have limits of one kind or another. The lovingly drawn boundaries of a creator who is hell-bent on reminding his creatures of their true size. But notice it is entirely possible to hear these not as conditions of the promise, but rather as part of the promise itself. Here is a way of life that works, God says. Set these 10 posts in the center of your camp. Hang a tent on them. It may be enough for you to figure out how to survive in this wilderness. Discard them. You flirt with your own destruction. They are my gift to you. And of course, I'm putting words in God's mouth, which is never a smart thing to do. <laughs> Though one way or another, we are always doing that, right? Sifting through all of the evidence at hand and then ascribing motives to God that for all we know may bend God right into with laughter. My own motive here is that we believe in one God, not one God of the promise and one God of the law, no. I do not believe that the Old Testament is a God of harsh judgment who suddenly melts into a God of pure grace on the first page of the New Testament. The grace has always been there. Ever since God couldn't bear to banish Adam and Eve from the garden with nothing to wear, he closed them <laughs> even as they turn their back and walk away. The covenant with Moses is no sudden imposition of conditions on God's love. It is a natural extension of that love the very careful description of a way of life that will protect the people so that they can actually enjoy the promise. Obedience doesn't earn the promise. It is theirs, it is yours, mine, unconditionally and forever. Obedience is the sign that they believe the promise. And what they soon find out, for better or for worse, is there really is no reward to the covenants. It is true, the wicked still prosper, and sometimes the good die young. And that doesn't change a thing. Keeping the commandments is its own reward. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my peculiar treasure. We are always both, not only peculiar, but a treasure. Not only a treasure, <laughs> but peculiar. <laughs> the rowdiest group of people God ever tried to love. But love us, God does. Not because of who we are, but because of who God is. The Lord is the one who bears us on eagle's wings out of everything that threatens to enslave us and who gives us the law to preserve our lives and who, though sometimes we break God's heart, keeps covenant with us 
it's all right, God says. I still love you. And I will always love you. 